0: Hi there. You're listening to the MindRamp Podcast. I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson, and in this podcast, we will be discussing research on psychedelics with Albert Garcia-Romeo. Al is a member of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Faculty at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and a guest researcher at the National Institute on Drug Abuse Intramural Neuroimaging Research Branch. His research examines the effects of psychedelics in humans with a focus on psilocybin as an aid in the treatment of addiction. His current research interests include clinical applications of psychedelics, mindfulness, and altered states of consciousness and their underlying neurobiological mechanisms. He's interested in real-world drug use patterns and their impacts on public health, and also on the role of spirituality in mental health and addiction fascinating topics. But how does this all relate to crafting a successful longevity? Well, among other benefits, it seems that psychedelics can improve the physical health of our brains. I want to set the stage by jumping to the part of the discussion where we talked specifically about how psychedelics might benefit older adults. We work mostly with older adults and we're interested in longevity and how to make the best of old age. And Mm -hmm. so why should we older adults be interested in new research and things that occurred to me? Well, just prevention of chronic and age-related diseases seems to be one of the benefits. You were talking about increased plasticity of the brain, um, but also an anti-inflammatory effect chronic inflammation, systemic inflammation seems to be implicated in all kinds of age-related diseases including dementia and so on. So you're nodding your head this is <laughs> this is it's, all making sense to you. Uh,
1: yeah no those those are all really spot on you know in terms of um, what types of discoveries have we made in the last decade or two? About these psychedelics and how they work, that would be um, particularly of interest or useful, you know, to older, aging populations. is Specifically, you know, what you noted, which is um, they seem to have important therapeutic effects or benefits by mechanisms such as in- anti-inflammatory properties. You know, providing these new connections in uh, important brain regions like the prefrontal cortex, and you know, those at least at the moment seem to be very compelling uh, directions for research to. Potentially create some new therapeutic models and and potentially you know some new treatments for conditions where we've been stuck for years and and you know certainly uh, neurodegenerative disorders and things like Alzheimer's where hundreds of, of drugs have been tested and very few have, have shown to do anything beneficial. Right, really kind of begs the question of why not? Why are we not looking at this and. And so that's kind of what brought us to do the research that we're doing now.
0: If psychedelics can actually stimulate the growth of of dendrites, that's pretty exciting because that's regenerative. It's not just preventive. Yeah. The -hmm. other things that occurred to me are are sort of the amelioration of the fear of, of death and of dying what's it going to be like when I die? And is that a fearful thing, but also the process of dying? And is that going to be filled with pain and loss and so on? And it seems like psychedelics help people not be so afraid.
1: Yes. I think that, you know, besides all the other things that we talked about today, you know, there was a good continuum of research um, in palliative care with psychedelics in the uh, 60s and 70s, uh, showing that it could really, they could really be helpful for people who were um, severely ill or, you know, dealing with terminal illness or, you know, kind of on the verge of, of dying. Mm-hmm. And and so I think uh, absolutely that in the palliative care setting, there's a lot of potential for psychedelics to provide a lot of comfort, to help people psychologically um, have a, a little bit more of a sense of closure or meaning or purpose or at least just acceptance of what, what it is that they're going through. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's another area that's that's very important, I think, with this work. Um, you know, we are doing a small study right now at Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland, where we are recruiting people with uh, early stage Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment um, and depressed mood, uh, because we are specifically looking to see if in older people who have gotten one of these uh, early stage dementias, if we give them a couple of doses of psilocybin if that's going to help improve the outlook if it's going to um, provide any benefits in their mood or memory right. um and so yeah if anybody is interested you know our website is hopkinspsychedelic.org and they can learn more about the research there but um yeah absolutely you know we are um you know very excited to see where the future of this field kind of takes us and um and i do hope that it's in a direction where we find things that that will be useful and beneficial, not just to older folks, but to everyone. Right.
0: In addition to concrete therapeutic benefits, the psychedelic experience seems to alter our states of consciousness in potentially beneficial ways. So just what does this mean? Just what is a psychedelic experience? What does it feel like? I was writing down things sort of that i find in the literature that people say and maybe just let me list them off and then we can go back and talk about them and what it means people talk about it being transcendental and and mystical they feel a a unity some kind of unity with all of existence of oneness there's a dissolution of self and dissolution of ego and people will say this is one of the most profound experiences of my life which is <laughs> pretty pretty startling the word numinous is used ineffable i saw the term controlled psychosis. talk about those things what you know what is going
1: on when people are experiencing a, a
0: psychedelic trip
1: absolutely you know uh you hit on um, some of the key hallmark features of these experiences Um, And it depends, you know, it it depends on the person and their personality, um, and it depends on the um, setting or environment in which they're taking the drug, and it depends on the dose of what, uh, you know, how much they're taking. So you may not have some of these ego-dissolving types of experiences at a low dose. But at higher doses, which is what we tend to use in the lab here um, for research and for therapy purposes, you see, you do see a lot of these, um, what are sometimes termed transcendent experiences. Um, or experiences where a person feels a sense of unity. And you can mm-hmm. almost think of, you know, if we're walking around day-to-day life um, and you're almost like, you know, on the inside and everything else out there is on the outside and that's the world and here, everything in here is me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there can be a sort of loss of those boundaries uh, or dissolving um, or perhaps a, a, a opening up of... of um, porousness of those of those boundaries between mm-hmm. yourself and what's out there and when that happens um you know people do feel sometimes a sense of unity uh, a sense of connectedness to um either the kind of the universe at large uh sometimes you know a higher power might be you know mm-hmm. a sense of a higher power or sacredness might be present You know, could feel a lot of positive emotions like love and gratitude, certainly towards loved ones, you know, close friends and family. You know, so a lot of those types of experiences come come up for people uh, under the influence. Um, But it's not the only type of experience that people have. I think there's been a big fascination with the mystical type experience. uh, And I'm certainly, you know, um, someone who's been interested in that from the get go as well. Um, But I think what's become Uh, very clear over the last 10 years to me, you know, having sit in many of these uh, drug administration sessions is that there's a a grand variety of of types of experiences that people can have. Uh, And some of them can be very frightening. Uh, Some of them can be very anxiety provoking Um, and others can just be a little bit more quizzical. They're um, hard to put your finger on. Um, You know, I've had people just kind of lay for, a period of time and come back and say, you know, it's kind of like I was half asleep. I was sort of in a dreamlike state. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't have any of those very pronounced feelings of unity, mm. um, or feelings of, you know, insight, which I think, um, for some people can be a, a big key feature of, you know, feeling like you're understanding either yourself or patterns that you have lived through and relived. Yeah. Um, uh, and for others, that just really does not come up at all. So, um, you know, when, uh, Humphrey, when Humphrey Osmond and others, you know, talked about these psychedelics as being mind manifesting, I think it also kind of comes back to a, an important facet of these substances, which is it depends on the mind that's being manifested, yeah. what type of experience is happening. And that could also be very much dependent on what's going on for that person just in the moment, you know, whether they're preoccupied with, you know, their mother's illness or, uh, you know, potentially impending move or job change or, you know, troubles with the spouse. Um, so all that type of thing can really color, um, you know, the way that the experience unfolds. Um, so, you know, I think that's what makes this doubly fascinating because while yes, we do see many of those mystical transcendent, um, right. ego dissolving experiences, um, We also see this other kind of range of of experiences that can come up and oftentimes, you know, be very useful and and, um, therapeutic in their own right.
0: So what kind of research is being done on psychedelics?
1: So we do human laboratory research where mm. basically we have people come in as volunteers and we might give them the drug or a placebo or some other drug. And then we do all sorts of testing on them. We might put them in a brain scanner mm. or have them uh, do different types of cognitive tests. And then we can just measure what, you know, what the drug is doing for them. You know, My area has also been kind of more geared towards the clinical trials. Um, And so those are still research studies. So we're not providing treatment um, because this is not an approved or recognized treatment. What it is is really an experimental intervention that we're studying. And in those cases, um, yeah, we typically will design the study around a particular condition or population of interest, like cancer patients, for instance, who are struggling with anxiety and depression. And then we would bring them in. And what we would do is measure how anxious or depressed they are as well as we can from the get go. And then we would uh, perhaps assign them to two conditions, uh, for instance, where in one condition they would wait for six months. Then we measure their depression, and anxiety again, and then we give them psilocybin. And then we compare that to another group who um, we give them psilocybin right away. And then we measure their depression again and anxiety mm. uh, afterwards to see how those folks do. And that way you can see, are these people just getting better as a function of time? Or are the people are actually getting better after the psilocybin is administered? I see.
0: my discussion with Danny George about psychedelics he brought up this idea of shamanism sort of suggesting that you guys who lead these lead the trips and guide the trips are, are behaving in a shamanistic manner the idea was I mean there's nothing necessarily mystical about it we talk about set and setting in relationship to this and that the the way you set it up and the, also the setting it, that you're in as you're describing is going to have an effect.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it's a really important element of what we do. Um, And, you know, just to backtrack a little bit, with shamanic practice, I mean, there's such a huge variety. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. talking cross-cultural from, you know, Siberia and to South America, Asia, through prehistory all the way to modern Mm -hmm. day. You know, so there's such a huge variety. I mean, in many uh, shamanic practices, the shamans themselves are the ones who are taking the drugs. Not They're not giving it to anybody else. Um, and, and, you know, what they're doing is they're trying to communicate with the sort of spirit world mm. and get valuable information to bring back to people in the community. Um, so it really it varies by culture. But, um, you know, in cultures that do use psychedelics and where shamans do prepare those and then give them to people, for instance, in, in groups that use things like peyote or uh, ayahuasca, You know, there is often uh, preparatory work, things like fasting or certain prescribed practices that people do before they um, get up into the dosing sessions or, you know, administering the substances. And so, yeah, we do a sort of similar but more Western psychologically oriented uh, model of preparation, which really, you know, hinges on a couple of key pieces Um, One is just a rapport building, meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to try to get to know the person that is going to be having the experience. And we want them to also feel like they're getting to know us and have a sense of comfort and safety that this is a person that um, they trust, that they feel comfortable working with. And, you know, in addition to that, we will typically do a fairly comprehensive life review. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what that means is, you know, we would be talking now, I would say, Michael, tell me, you know, what? tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about your family. Tell me about mm-hmm. where you went to school, your parents. What kind of relationship did they have with each other? What kind of relationship did you have with them, um, with your siblings? You know, tell me about important things that happened to you when, when you were growing up. Loss of a parent, you know, being traumatized, you know, going mm-hmm. through some sort of horrific experience, um, whether it be, you know, in a, in a war zone or something else that might have happened about being a victim of a crime or of some sort of abuse. Mm.
0: This is interesting because you know? I, I think I read in some of the literature that there is a priming effect. I think particularly in a psychoanalytic setting, if you prime a subject to talk about their childhood, oh, I remember what it was. Uh, in in the early research about psychedelics, you had, say, Freudian psychoanalysts and Jungian psychoanalysts, and the Freudian psychoanalysts would prime the brain uh, so that when a person was under a psychedelic trip, they would talk about their childhood experiences, childhood trauma. When, when in a Jungian uh, psychologist, they would get more of the transcendental because that's what what they were interested. In. The whether consciously or unconsciously, it was almost that the. Uh, the guide was priming the 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 patient or the subject's brain to take this particular route in their their their
1: trip well, I think that there's a really good possibility of that because mm. it depends on you know what are you asking about um, you know that kind of guides these conversations um The main thing for us is we want to know um if there are any things that have been psychologically formative to the person mm. um, and because oftentimes. Um, particularly with unresolved things, you know, they could come up during the sessions, And so we want to be informed about that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of priming, I think a really good example of that is uh, we do um, a lot of work with cigarette smokers who are trying to quit. And mm-hmm. so when we're asking people to tell us about their lives, we're often interjecting, you know, so when did you start smoking? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So when you met your wife, were you smoking then? Was she a smoker? Did you, what? How does she feel about your smoking? Right. So, you know, we kind of bring that in and try to weave that through the discussion, um, because obviously it's such an important part of what we're working towards is getting them to to quit, hopefully. I have really focused on depression um, and substance use disorders or treating, you know, basically addictions, um, cigarette smokers being one of the primary areas for us.
0: And what are you finding? What are your preliminary results? Yeah, yeah, uh,
1: the You know, the studies that have been published in clinical populations so far, uh, the biggest one that we published were uh, the cancer patients with anxiety and and depression. And what we found is that uh, they were experiencing uh, significantly reduced levels of depression and anxiety, Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe it was up to six months after uh, they had received a single high dose of psilocybin. And so, you know, just noting that you're having these persisting antidepressant uh, anxiolytic effects is really um, noteworthy in that uh, group of people because oftentimes, you know, they're really struggling. And, you know, they also did have things like improved quality of life, which is an important metric uh, for people who, you know, may have a, just a shorter time left oh, yeah. to work with. Indeed. What uh create such a, i think a uh, a big interest in these uh, substances because it's unusual to see you know a person take a drug on one day right. and then you know many months or even more later to continue to have effects from it especially good effects um and so what we're seeing is at least indicative that there could be these long lasting uh benefits um and that's similar to what we've seen with uh patients with major depression
0: in addition to the duration you know, that it, it's the lasting effect. The fact that it's immediate is also pretty startling, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's I mean. a great point. Because um, most of the medications that we have, and, and this is a problem, particularly when people are in acute depression with per- perhaps suicidality, you know. The types of medications we have typically take some time, two weeks, four weeks, six mm-hmm. weeks before that people start to feel better. And so that's a long time for people to feel that that crummy. Uh, and so <laughs> yeah. to be able to, to do something that has a rapid acting antidepressant effect is a, is a big breakthrough. And we've known for a little while now that ketamine, um, which is not exactly a classic psychedelic, but it's kind of a, a rela- related type of drug, um, can have some of these similar rapid acting antidepressant effects, but they don't seem to last as long, mm-hmm. um, only for about a week or two. And so, um, with psilocybin, seeing that for at least, you know, a number of people who go through these trials, Um, They're having the rapid acting antidepressant effects and that's going on for some time. You know, it makes it an intriguing target for more research.
0: I was curious how much of the research extends beyond the actual psychedelic trip. So I asked Al if they spent time with the subjects before and after the taking of the drug.
1: Oh, absolutely. So we're not, you know, just giving people these, these drugs and then sending them home. You know, we'll spend, like I said, a month beforehand preparing for that. Um, sometimes we'll do more than one dosing session, um, mm-hmm. you know, spread out at a you know a couple of week intervals, um, and then we're doing supportive care afterwards, usually for at least a month. Oftentimes, a couple of months after, um, we're kind of continuing to come back and say, you know, first of all, what what was the experience, the nature of the experience, and you know, what if anything did you get out of that uh, experience. And then, in addition, you know, how can I, if, if there were any insights or any sort of valuable lessons, how do you put those into practice? You know, if one of the things that you realized during your experience, for instance, was that you've been estranged from your brother for 40 years that you haven't spoken to and that you feel really terrible about that, you know, then where does that lead and how do you sort of integrate that into your, your life? And, you know, that's just one example, but there's so many different things that can come up for people um, whether it's engaging in a meditation practice, um, you know beginning a journaling, um, you know exercise, um, gratitude practice. So we have a lot of different types of uh, strategies that we try to use to help support ongoing openness and you know allow that person to maintain some of these newfound flexibility that can come about after the experience. One of the impressions that I get
0: when reading the literature, and this sounds weird even as I start to form the question, but it seems to make people better people. And it, that takes me back to one of the things you were saying early on, that it's it kind of amplifies whatever is in your mind to begin with. So is there some sense that you get that it makes people nicer?
1: So, you know, that's, a I think, a loaded question. And I, and I think that there <laughs> are ways, sure is. you, you know, know, that these drugs can be used that, um, and just look at Charles Manson, for instance, because, mm. you know, he had a sort of cult of personality. There was yeah. a lot of LSD use involved and certainly didn't make any, his followers any nicer. I mean, eventually, you know, they went on and committed yeah, you know, murders right. and, and things like that. So I think there is a very real potential for these drugs to be used in ways that are not you know, mm. towards the, the greater good, if you will. Yeah. Um, I think and I talk to people about this a lot, um, just like fire. I mean, you know, I use I can use a fire to cook a steak and have dinner. and It's great. And it keeps me warm. And that fire could also burn my house down. Right. And so you just got to, you know, really, I think matters what the intent is when people are using it. And also, again, who's, you know, who's um, the person on the receiving end? Um, because there are people with, you know, Manson being, I think, a, a great mm. example know, pathological personalities. And right. there's a possibility for that to be amplified in ways that are quite unhealthy, right. um, unfortunately. And so, you know, thinking that the only possibility for these is that they are going to lead to good beneficial outcomes for people and that they're going to be nicer versions of themselves is perhaps a little Pollyanna-ish. And, mm-hmm. and so I definitely like to just come back and say, well, you know, there's a real potential for a dark side here as well. But Absolutely. I think when used with good intent, you know, and I think for a lot of indigenous communities that use these as part of spiritual practice, there's actual kind of personal growth angle. You know, that's sort of what what people are moving towards. And in those senses, you know, I I like to think of it almost as um, there's a sort of Buddhist uh, perspective here um, where. You know, the mind is like a, a mirror and it's perfectly you know, reflecting whatever is out there in the world. And then over time and dust settles on the mirror. And then, you know, if you mm-hmm. do your your regular meditation practice, you can sort of remove that dust and get back to that pristine state. And so I think with people um, often, you know, we have kind of a core self that's a good you know self. And then things happen to us and we, you know, pick up perhaps bad habits or bad attitudes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's a real powerful potential for psychedelics to help people sort of release themselves from some of those beliefs, attitudes and behaviors that are no longer serving them. And, you know, you might pick them up from a perfectly reasonable uh, experience. You know, you get, for instance, you know, people with PTSD, you're in a traumatic experience, you're in a place like a combat zone And your brain is learning basically, hey, there's danger all over. I need to be careful. And you come back, you know, to the grocery store and you're trying to buy groceries for your family and you're still in that, you know, activated state of, hey, everything around here is dangerous and risky. So I think what the psychedelics can do is help unlearn some of those behaviors or beliefs that can sometimes get kind of uh, ingrained in there quite deeply, uh, whether it be through our childhood experiences or through Other things that we go through in our lives. We
0: talked about set and setting and all of this stuff being very important. So people just going out and taking psychedelics on their own is probably not a great idea. Is that correct?
1: I mean, there's risks. Um, Obviously, Mm -hmm. there's risks with any sort of substance use, but you know it depends on what you're getting sometimes if you're getting something from a black market you don't know exactly what you're getting right you not know what dose you're getting um, so that can be risky if you're doing it in a place you know out in the world you know you could obviously become disoriented and, mm-hmm. and sometimes there's a risk for uh dangerous behavior for some people you know they might wander out in traffic or they're in nature you mm-hmm. know they may you know get lost or disoriented and then, you know, there's people, too, who have predisposition to certain types of mental health conditions like bipolar mood, um, schizophrenia mm-hmm. or psychosis. And so for those folks, you know, taking a high dose of these drugs may actually trigger a, a you know, problematic mental health episode. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, those are some of the risks that we know about. But at the same time, yeah, we're we, you know, there's lots of people who use these substances recreationally. And yeah, we're interested in, in what that looks like. We're studying that. For instance, I have a study now with, you know, several thousand people who are using psilocybin out there in the world. And we're just kind of tracking, you know, what happens to them and, and how much are they taking and what situations right. are they in?
0: Are they microdosing? I mean, there's this idea of taking little tiny bits of psilocybin just to...
1: So for that specific study that I mentioned, we're mainly asking people to tell us about their high dose experiences. Ah. Microdosing, because it's such a varied practice, Um, you know, uh, there has not been a lot of good research on it. Um, To date, you know, my read of what's out there is that it doesn't seem to really do much that would be congruent with mental health benefits, but Mm -hmm. it hasn't been studied very well or carefully enough yet. I think there's been maybe uh, five or so studies where people did a, a microdosing with placebo control. A lot of the times what you see may just be a placebo effect. That was what came to mind, yeah, with the microdosing. So the jury's still out there. Um, but I mean, a lot of the, I would say the majority of what we've been talking about today, um, where we're seeing, you know, these persisting changes or reductions in depression, anxiety, these are, you know, really around high dose use. Um, and so that's what we've been focusing on. And that's my, my main area of interest. And am I correct that your research showed that
0: one approach is to regulate the dose according to body mass index, for example? And you found that that didn't really matter. Is that correct? You could just give a standard dose to people? And it
1: Yeah. So that's a great question, too, because we, um, for years and years, we were using a body weight adjusted dosing method, Meaning, mm-hmm. a bigger guy like me, I weigh about 300 pounds. Is going to get you know twice as much psilocybin as a smaller person weighs one hundred and fifty right. pounds, and that basically was just the practice that we went with because uh, we didn't know any better whether or not that was really necessary. Right. Um, but it was a conservative way of doing this. Um, I went back and I took data from I think it was a couple hundred people that we had administered psilocybin to in the lab here over the course of about twenty years, and then we kind of just did a post hoc analysis and said, well, let's look at whether or not the effects and body weight are related in any substantial way. And it didn't seem to be. Um, It didn't really seem to make a difference whether you were looking at people of a a similar weight who got the same dose or if you're looking at people uh, of varying weights who got varied doses because of that. Um, And so a lot of the research now tends to be moving towards using these uh, what we call fixed doses. Uh, where um, you get 25 milligrams, I get 25 milligrams. You know the person yeah. down down there mm. gets 25 milligrams, yeah. um, and it's not got nothing to do with their body weight. Yeah. And there's probably still other things that we don't know um, because some people seem more or less sensitive to these drug effects, but it doesn't seem to be how how big and heavy you are.
0: This is part one of my discussion with Albert Garcia Romeo. Be sure to listen to part two, where we delve more into the neurobiological mechanisms of the psychedelic experience. What is actually going on in the brain when we experience these weird types of altered consciousness? To reiterate some of the key points of this session, psychedelics seem to have a lot of therapeutic benefits, including the ability to reduce chronic inflammation while at the same time increasing the plastic flexibility of the brain and the expansion of brain networks. Research has demonstrated improved mood, lowering depression and anxiety, and these results are both immediate and long-lasting. And in the clinical setting, the researchers spend a fair amount of time with their subjects both before and after administering the drug to make sure that their minds are in a good place to experience the trip and then also have time to process whatever insights or revelations they may have had from the drug experience. As Al comments, the research results to date are pretty encouraging and certainly justify further investigation of the therapeutic benefits of psychedelic drugs. All right. Well, that's it for now. Thank you so much for being interested in brain health. Be sure to take care of your brain, take care of yourself, take care of your family, take care of your community, and take care of the planet that supports us all. Until next time.